Stan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for coming on, man. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's awesome to get to talk to you because I really love the fact that you can approach uh, a lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about from two different angles. Obviously, you are an incredibly strong individual, and a lot of your training throughout your life has been based around being a strong athlete. But on the flip side, you are also very much uh, about keeping your physique in a certain condition. And uh, to do so, you have very strict regimens, which we're going to go into later. But I think it's very interesting because not a lot of people have the context from both sides of the argument. So I think it's, it's going to be very, very interesting to kind of talk to you. So I really want to talk about the vertical diet. It's very, very interesting. Um, obviously it has helped a hell of a lot of people. I know people personally, um, before I even really got into, uh, the vertical diet and kind of what it was about that had tremendous results. And it wasn't actually through seeing your guys's posts. Uh, it was actually through seeing all of my friends transformations and just kind of seeing this thing, keep on cropping up, keep on cropping up. Okay. Right. I should really get into this and check it out. Being a, a strength athlete, a strong man. Um, I thought, okay, this, this, this makes sense. So, where where did this develop for you and kind of what I really want uh, and I'm interested in is kind of like what were the stumbling blocks getting from kind of the, the first idea of what you wanted to create to kind of getting to the end vertical diet product? Yeah, you know, I started competing in 1986 and so I've been gaining weight to be a, a power lifter and losing weight to compete in bodybuilding for 30 years. So a lot of it is just from sheer uh, effort and experience. I've tried just about everything you can imagine. Uh, you know, I've read everything you can imagine. I studied exercise science at University of Oregon. I have a science degree from there. I was a high school soccer coach and I worked with uh, high school collegiate and, and professional athletes all throughout uh, my life. And I just found that there were certain lessons I learned and certain things that I uh, gleaned from working with athletes, uh, watching mistakes they made, mistakes I made, uh, what was successful for me, and just seeing that there was some consistency about it. <laughs> There's two completely polar opposite ends of the spectrum. There's those people that are dieting. And those, there's those athletes who probably want to maintain or gain a significant amount of lean body mass uh, to perform better in sports, whether it's football or strongman or, uh, you know, any of the powerlifting type sports. And I've been training women for competition since the late 80s at a very high level, all the way to nationals and professional uh, female figure physique bikini bodybuilding. Of course, back then it was just bodybuilding. So I refer to that whole industry as the professional dieters. And along the way, of course, I've worked with, you know, hundreds and now thousands of dad bods and soccer moms. And, you know, just in the last two years since launching the vertical diet, I've received over 50,000 DMs, emails, and texts from people with questions or comments or feedback. Uh, and I've learned a lot from that process as well. So when you ask me about the vertical diet and how it kind of developed, it, it's really, you know, just the culmination of everything that I feel as though I've learned uh, through trial and error, through interface with great coaches and great athletes and, and just clients. 
Uh, and I, I feel like I've come up with a program that works for most people. And it's somewhat flexible, as you know, because not everybody has the same goals or the same predispositions. So that doesn't give us any specifics, but it kind of helps you understand that, that I've been at this a long, long time. And I recruited a registered dietitian who's a PhD in exercise phys and was former head of the dietetic department at UNLV uh, to go through this with a fine tooth, tooth comb with me to to get over 200 articles and videos and peer review published research to, to support it. So it's, it's the fact that I put a name on it late in my career was really just so people could identify, uh, you know, what it is I was doing. Uh, but it's really the same program I've been using for, uh, you know, refining for at least the last 10 years with my clients, the people who, who come to me for training. I want to give them a comprehensive program that covers everything. And I know it's it, it, people hear diet and they think it's just food. But as you know from looking at it, it's very comprehensive. It's the vertical diet and peak performance. And it includes sleep and hydration and uh, cardio and um, uh, you know hypertrophy training and, and strength training, uh, gut health, hormone optimization, uh, a whole host of different things, about all of which are very important. It's not just the food. That's one, uh, you know, relatively significant, but but only small piece of the whole pie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they're points that I uh, that I will get onto because as uh, as an athlete myself, as someone that's played to a high level through throughout my life uh, at various different sports, it's really interesting for me to find something that, like you said about earlier accumulatively takes in so many different uh, sporting backgrounds and kind of it's that whole thing of like you can't you can't create something for everyone but this seems to be the closest thing to being there like yeah there are going to be certain people that just can't take in those certain nutrients or maybe they have uh, allergies to certain things that you can obviously chop and change and, and but the fact that it works really well for such a broad spectrum of sports. I find really interesting because I feel like that's quite rare in the industry um, that, that, that we're in today. Yeah, people know me for working with Hofthor Bjornsson and Brian Shaw uh, and a host of, of big athletes, uh, you know, Lane Johnson from the Philadelphia Eagles. and uh, But I also work with a 97-pound uh professional ballet dancer from the Sacramento Ballet Company. And I work with a 115-pound figure competitor, Nadia Wyatt, uh, who took third in the Miss Olympia. And uh, I work with Tiny Tiff, a 103-pound powerlifter. So, uh, you know, and I, I have, there's a picture on my site of Tiny Tiff with Hofthor Bjornsson, which is hilarious to see, because he's 450 pounds and Tiny Tiff's 103 pounds and all of about five foot or four, <laughs> four eleven, and Hofthor's six nine. So, uh, but the fact of the matter is, it's the same diet for both people. The foundation's the same. The, the physiology and the biology is the same. Uh, the foundation is the same. They just eat different total amounts of calories and, and total quantities of food. But they're really similar. You know, the concept's very similar for both of them. And how much are you scaling uh, carbohydrates up and down with with the higher calories and the lower calories? Are you keeping it? Are you is your goal with uh, each meal to keep certain percentiles and a breakdown of the macronutrients, 
or is it a case of that it's that the percentiles don't matter as much as the fact that all of the ingredients are working together towards a kind of end central goal? Obviously, macros count. That would be ridiculous not to say that, but you, you, do you know what I mean? Sure. Well, I create a hierarchy, and the question you ask me is kind of different depending on the individual's uh, goals and what their current uh, status is, you know, their current body fat and health markers. So I'll try and pinch this down so it's not too confusing, but uh, calories are king. We all know that. It's an energy balance equation, uh, so I, I do have to manage calories. If, if somebody's dieting, they need to be in a deficit. If they're trying to gain weight, i got to put them in a surplus. Uh, people who are dieting and need to be in a deficit, I generally will have them consume a little higher protein, maybe 1.2 grams per pound. Uh, what is that, about a uh, yeah, 2.5 per kilo? Yeah. Uh, and then now I can go one of two directions. Once I establish their protein, uh, and I keep them a high protein because it preserves the body mass, uh, because it's a high satiety food, and uh, you know has a, a better thermic effect of food, so they get fewer net calories out of it. If they eat 100 calories of protein, they're only going to net out about 70. So protein really is the greatest thing on the planet for weight loss. If you just ate protein, you would be more successful, I think, than than uh, than any of the other macro blends that, that are out there. Uh, so I'm a huge fan of that. Obviously, a lot of that research comes from Dr. Jose Antonio of the International Society of Sports Nutrition, who's done lots of work on protein overfeeding studies. Uh, you, you might find me reference a lot of people along the way here because uh, I, I don't claim to have invented any of this stuff. I've, I've, I've managed to go out and find out for the things, I, the lessons I learned very hard many, many years ago. Uh, so once I get done with protein, uh, obviously calorie, I created a calorie deficit and then I, I give those dieters uh, a decent amount of protein, uh, probably a higher protein intake than, than, than uh, what might traditionally be uh, consumed. And now I go one of two directions. If, if that individual is um, metabolically compromised, if they've got high blood sugars or high insulin, uh, some sort of type 2 diabetes or maybe or, or a predisposition for that, then I'm going low carb. Uh, and that could be for a couple of reasons. One, because people tend to overeat carbs. That, that's when you look at ad libitum studies of, of whether or not people go high carb or low carb, one of the greatest benefits is they just seem to be less hungry when they go low carb. Uh, and that can matter in terms of compliance. That can be a very important aspect. It's not that it's if you control for calories and control for protein, they, they get similar benefits. They have similar weight loss and body composition uh, uh, retention. And there's not a really significant difference in insulin secretion either. That was the diet fits trial out of Stanford that studied over 600 people for a year. And, and they did high carb versus low carb. And as long as they controlled for calories and protein, there was no difference in the outcome. So I look kind of, but they were able to control whatever. If you're not controlling and you just ask your client to, to eat a, you know, this many calories, whether or not their compliance really matters. And so we and look at, at their natural behaviors. Because so many people track. claim to track it correctly and they track huge. everything completely wrong. And you're like, yeah. well, there's no physical way that you can be hitting these ranges because your body is telling me a completely different story. <laughs> 
Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that's Occam's razor. When somebody comes to me and says they're not losing weight, 99% of the time they're not tracking calories correctly. And we know that, that labels can be off by 30%, restaurants can be off by 50%, registered dietitians are off by 20 to 30%. So it's not, you know, it's not an indictment on the individual that's trying to diet. It's just uh, at a time like that, it, it may behoove someone to, uh, to weigh their foods and to track them more carefully so they can just make adjustments an ounce here, a half a quarter cup there. Uh, but there's a whole ton of behaviors that go into this compliance issue uh, that we've seen from uh, the weight control registry has studied successful dieters for many, many years. You see that people who tend to eat the same thing every day tend to eat less of it. Uh, it's called food reward. When you go to the refrigerator and you open it up and you're looking for something you're hungry for, uh, you tend to eat more of it. If you're driving around and you're, you're, you're hungry and you go to a fast food place, you're going to some place you're hungry for, your favorite fast food place. Uh, when you look at a menu, you tend to order something that you're hungry for, that you desire, and you, you, we tend to overeat those things. And so one thing that the bikini figure fitness and, and bodybuilding industry does, the professional diet industry, very well is that they, they track their meals. They supperware and meal prep. Uh, they do a lot of stuff terribly, which we can certainly discuss, but that's the single best indicator of, of success, and it's been studied extensively, that when you meal prep, you're much more likely to be compliant and to get the results that you want. And if you've got pre-portioned meals uh, in Tupperware, in your fridge, or however, that's why I'm a big proponent of carrying around the thermos with your hot meal in it, so when you got to pick the kids up at school and take them to piano practice or whatever, you don't end up ordering with them at McDonald's on the way home. So uh, meal prep's the big thing. So kind of back to my dieters, once I get them adequate protein, um, we said that, that my metabolically challenged dieters are probably gonna go with a low carb. Uh, otherwise, I'm gonna place them with about 0.3 grams of protein per pound of body weight, which is what, about uh, 0.7 grams per kilo uh, of, of fats. Uh, and then the rest will be carbs, and by the rest, I just mean if they need to maintain a calorie deficit, then they just subtract the protein and fat intake from their total calorie allotment, and the rest can be carbs. The reason I'm, I'm a fan of carbs for most people that, that, aren't, that don't have a problem with appetite and don't have a problem with blood sugars is they, they're more likely to be beneficial for training, and to me, uh, weight training is a huge piece of whether or not you're losing, uh, retaining lean body mass while dieting. I don't want a dieter to lose muscle tissue. Uh, the research shows us very clearly that the more muscle you, you lose when you diet, the more you, the more likely you'll be to regain weight after the diet, and more of that weight will be fat, and then you'll have a, you'll start to get that compromised uh, basal metabolic rate over time. That's what happens with chronic dieters, yo-yo dieters. They're just get, they're, they're, <clears throat> their basal metabolic rate just keeps going down and down and down because they keep losing more and more muscle tissue. So that's kind of the design for weight loss. <clears throat> Calories first, then macros, protein being the most important. And then I'll just pin fats at 0.3 grams per pound and do the balance in carbs <clears throat> and, uh, and, and encourage them to do the three 10 minute walks after each um, 10 minute walk after each meal to control blood sugars and to lift weights. Uh, lift weights is more important to me than cardio. 
I don't recommend cardio for uh, burning calories. The, the research shows us pretty clearly that, that the idea of exchanging work for calories is a poor way uh, for long-term weight loss. That when you take two groups, one that just does a calorie deficit and one that does a calorie deficit plus exercise, there's very little difference in the amount of weight that they lose and loss retention over time. Uh, something as simple as a few 10-minute walks, a couple 10-minute walks a day, uh, just increasing your non-exercise activity thermogenesis, staying on more often, is a far better um, way to, to maintain weight loss. And it's the diet itself. It, it's it's 99% how much you eat in, in dieting. So that's where I kind of focus my most of my attention. The big challenge with weight loss is twofold. One, uh, or I should say the reason why people fail, because most people succeed. Most people lose weight when they go on a diet. Six out of seven people who go on a diet, any diet, not the vertical diet, any diet, paleo, keto, uh, Jenny Craig, uh, Slim Fast, you know, Weight Watchers, I don't care. I'm not a zealot about any of that. Uh, anybody who goes on a diet, uh, six out of seven of them will lose weight. The vast majority of them will gain it back. And there's two reasons why. One is uh, they get hungry, and two is they get tired. And so my whole diet's designed to try and mitigate those two problems. I mentioned increasing protein intake for satiation. That helps to mitigate hunger. Uh, I make sure and get adequate potassium and sodium in the diet, and that helps with cravings. So people aren't out grabbing sugar when they just need a little bit of sodium and that their uh, water balance is good so they don't get cravings. Uh, obviously, I get them more sleep. That helps twofold. Uh, it decreases their insulin release. Uh, it helps retain muscle tissue. Uh, it also, if you're awake fewer hours in the day, you're less. that's a pretty big component of it that people never consider. If you're up uh, uh, 18 hours a day, you're going to eat more than if you're up 16 hours a day. It just gives you an extra time frame for another meal. So... I'm trying to mitigate those two things. And with respect to energy, uh, a lot of people tend to become micronutrient deficient when they go on overly restrictive diets. And that happens in the bodybuilding physique figure bikini industry because demonizing, they eliminate dairy, they eliminate red meat, they eliminate uh, whole eggs, they eliminate fruit, they eliminate salt. Those, almost everybody who's been on a diet <clears throat> has been told to eliminate one or most of all those things, particularly if you're prepping for a show. And all of those things are extremely important for energy, in addition to sleep, obviously, is the, is the foundation of all that. But if you eliminate red meat, especially if you're a woman, well, there goes your iron and your B12 and zinc. And then you end up getting tired and go to the doctor, and he gives you a shot for iron and B12. So it, it seems counterintuitive. Same with the whole egg yolk thing, which, you know, the egg yolks have the choline, the biotin for your skin, hair, and nails. Um, these restrictive diets already suppress thyroid function. And between suppressed thyroid function and possibly anemia from low iron, uh, which leads to amenorrhea, the female triad, along with uh, calcium deficiency, restrictive diets. They eat far fewer calories than men generally, and have more micronutrient deficiencies. And then their hair gets brittle and starts falling out, and they, they lose energy. Uh, it's a tragic situation, and uh, it's frustrating to me, having seen it in the, in the figure physique bikini industry for so long, 
it's been it's been particularly frustrating to see the general population start to acquire their dieting habits. You know, soccer moms all over the world see a bikini competitor think that that's a sensible diet plan. Look at her. She's in the best shape of her life, the best shape of her Living life. Off to uh, and, and don't know. And you're like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. They don't see that these women uh, are, uh, you know, usually have uh, low iron, low thyroid. Uh, they're exhausted. Uh, they've got, you know, they're osteoporotic, parotic possibly. Uh, in many cases, we, we saw it even in athletes who under eat end up with the uh, shin splints and a whole host of, of uh, bone mineral density deficiency problems. Okay. Uh, they don't see that. And they also aren't aware the dirty little secret behind the scenes is that most of these competitive women are using Anivar to try and retain their lean body mass. They're using thyroid because they've shut theirs down. They're using clenbuterol because they, to, to keep their, their, uh, their metabolism burning because they've They've you know, drained themselves of any, uh, of any basal metabolic rate that they once had. And so the general population, the soccer moms, end up with all the side effects and none of the benefits. They lose their muscle and they, they have the, the, you know, the thyroid suppression and all of that and can't figure out why this diet isn't working for them. Uh, it's just far too over-restrictive. So that's that entire half of the picture uh, with weight loss. And if uh, you have any questions about that before we flip to weight gain? No, no. Well, it's I think it's 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 interesting what you're saying there in terms of like uh, the the long term damage these diets are doing for for kind of thyroid issues, and especially when you're kind of you know you're talking about your soccer mums, we're we're at uh, at an age range there where obviously hormonal balances are going to go through tremendous changes, regardless of any other environmental factors that you might be bringing into it with the the dietary side of things. So I'm interested uh, to quickly hop off on what you feel you can do to help regain or to kind of negate some of the damage done from, because there are so many of, uh, of the, those soccer mums that, or, you know, over here is the exact same, that have done these fad diets and really damaged their thyroid and as a result really now struggle to lose that weight they seem to keep on consistently gaining so do you have any tips in in regards to in regards to how you can kind of negate some of the damage you're doing from that post kind of doing the the diet great question uh some of the damage that's done is because they eat a ton of egg whites and no yolks that robs biotin from their body that's skin hair and nails uh, they'll eat micronutrient deficient foods, just some, say, tilapia, maybe some broccoli. They eat a lot of high FODMAP foods, fermentable oligo dye, monosaccharides, and polyols. Those are foods that cause bloating and uh, can really be uncomfortable for digestion. Um, so that happens in the dieting industry. So what I recommend that women do is that, uh, first and foremost, they get an adequate amount of protein to maintain lean body mass, but that protein should be micronutrient. Uh, 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 and easy to digest. And so I use low FODMAP foods um, and those mi highly micronutrient dense, easy to digest proteins starts with actually red meat. It's three times higher in iron, six times higher in zinc, and 12 times higher in B12 than uh, even chicken. And it's certainly much more nutrient dense than egg whites. 
So I start by putting red meat in all of my athletes' diets. That's how I diet the, the third place Miss Olympia, Nadia Wyatt. We just go from, say, a New York steak in the off season to a top sirloin as we start dieting, down to a, a leaner sirloin tip or top round, and maybe get to our grass-fed steak during the last. So the eating is as lean as chicken, uh, but it's also much, much uh, more nutrient-dense and easy to absorb in that heme iron and B12 and zinc and selenium and creatine and carnitine. And so she doesn't lose energy. So that's the one with the red meat. I keep at least one or two whole eggs or egg yolks in daily. And I don't take in a whole ton of egg whites that could uh, rob that biotin because I want their skin, hair, and nails to, to get the nutrients that they need. So I keep a whole egg in. Uh, I keep salmon in twice a week to get the EPA and DHA that's necessary for your omega-3s. Uh, and that's actually adequate. Twice a week, a couple of five-ounce servings twice a week can give you uh, sufficient EPA and DHA. I think it's about two grams a day is what we're shooting for, so it's maybe 14 a week. I think you can get at least 12 from two five-ounce servings of, of salmon. Uh, I keep dairy in. It's hugely important, uh, not just for calcium, but for, um, uh, for you know, mineral density important, but for nerve signaling and for muscle contraction. Calcium is important. And we see that those who consume have the higher intake of dairy. When you look certainly at, when you look at the epidemiology, they tend to be leaner. Uh, and, and if you look at the Dutch in the Netherlands, they tend to be taller and uh, more muscular. So uh, dairy can be a very important contributor. Plus, it's lower in methionine, and this kind of gets down and deep into the weeds a little bit. Uh, and so it, too much uh, muscle meat can start to slow a bit can start to uh, slow the thyroid just a bit. And so I like to keep some dairy in there to kind of offset the, um, get more of a balance of amino acids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, so I keep dairy, dairy in. It, it, now if, it's, it's a hot topic because people are, are trying to steer clear of dairy now because there seems to be this huge movement around claiming that dairy has all of this inflammation on your body, on the gut. Um, that it's it's not good for you. It's an argument I feel kind of has come out of the, the, the kind of vegan extremist group to try and push people away from that. So just quickly to clear it up for people, is dairy as deadly as it seems? Not at all. Let me walk you through that. Now, yes, the vegans who have an ethical... Uh, uh, bone to pick, if, I should, if we want to use that <laughs> word. Uh, they'll use fear-mongering. They'll certainly use fear-mongering and, and, and false information to try and scare people into avoiding um, consuming dairy. Here's the thing. If you're lactose intolerant, then you shouldn't consume dairy or you should find a dairy source that uh, is lower in lactose. Uh, yogurt is, is generally much easier to digest than regular milk for those people who have some Lactose intolerance isn't always all or nothing. It could be dose dependent. It's individualistic and it's dose dependent. You might be able to handle four, four ounces of milk. Uh, so the yogurt seems to be better uh, digested. And then if you can't do yogurt, then you can go to a hard cheese like a cheddar uh, because that has almost no lactose in it. Still be able to get your calcium. Now, I do recommendation, make recommendations for people who are still unable to uh, utilize cheese. Uh, you, you can maybe get some... Be, uh, uh, use, uh, say, a canned salmon or a canned sardine with the bone in. Uh, that can provide you some, some calcium as well. But 
I'm, I'm trying to get to calcium here. That's, that's really one thing that is very important, particularly for women in their diet. Uh, so the research has consistently shown that, that, that dairy does not cause inflammation in people who don't already have a severe lactose intolerance or a whey allergy. So if you're allergic to peanuts, don't eat peanuts. You know, and I'm not going to run around and tell the whole world not to eat peanuts just from the small portion of people that have a peanut allergy. Yeah. And, the, and the same thing is true of dairy. And if you're allergic to shellfish, don't eat shellfish. And so I think it's, it's disingenuous to tell people who can, uh, who are able to assimilate dairy not, not to eat it because how it affects people who aren't able to assimilate it. So you can't make that kind of generalization. But the research is clear, this, and this, this isn't Stan Efforting saying this, this is from the meta-analyses that have been compiled by, uh, you know, I think very highly regarded people in the industry such as Alan Aragon and Lane Norton, uh, examine.com, you know, Kamal Patel. So uh, this, and I include links to all of their uh, literature and their opinions in my vertical diet. I'm, I'm not running around again saying that Stan created all of this and that I'm the be-all, end-all of interest. I provide the links to the people who have the PhDs and the MDs the and uh, the research experts. Of all of these people, you know, you've brought them all into that one place to yeah. bring all of their expertise together to excel in something that's much bigger than any of the individual aspects. And, and you know, and I try and pick people who are pragmatic and, and aren't don't have an axe to grind or a certain agenda. Uh, I try and be fair when I pick my resources. Any. I've tried to be very fair and, and yeah, I'm, you know, I've worked with lots and lots of, of people over the years. And I've learned something from each of them and I don't necessarily agree with everything all of them say. Um, but, you know, I, I continue to study the research and I mean, last year I went to the Barbell Medicine Seminar with Austin Baraki and, and Jordan Fagenbaum and I also went to uh, the, uh, the Starting Strength Seminar with Mark Ripito. Um, I read the NCSA, NSCA's textbook and got my CSCS last year. This is somebody who's been retired, who, who has a degree, uh, you know, from college. I'm still reading and studying and reading. I follow these people and, you know, I, I try and pass that information on to my clients. I want them to have the best information, the latest information. Greg Knuckles' Mass Research Review, and I, I read and listen to everything that they put out. Eric Trexler, again, I partnered with a registered dietitian. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very careful to make sure that, that I, I keep my ear, uh, you know, open for all the latest information. And I, I've made revisions over time. There's things that I've changed that I believed 30 years ago that I don't believe now, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, maybe even two years ago. <laughs> You know, I watch my uh, I watch my seminar that I did with Hafthor Bjornsson up in Iceland. It's got over five million views now, and I spent two hours talking through every aspect of the diet using the slideshow. And I and I there, I still see things that now I might change the wording a little bit and make sure it, I include the nuance and uh, because it, you know certain things apply differently to different people with different goals and different you know pre-existing conditions. So uh, you know that, that's just the way it is. I. I don't hold people uh, too hard five years ago or two years ago myself. So, uh, well, that's my dairy spiel. Uh, and and I, I say that about a lot of things because I've got a whole list of foods in the vertical diet that I don't think people should eat, at least initially. It's kind of an elimination diet using the low FODMAP. And I talk 
think about foods that might cause you digestive distress, sugar alcohols, potentially some grains, and depending on the amount that you eat, um, some uh, legumes and beans, potentially the phytic acid and, and the anti-nutrients that might start to cause gas, even things like broccoli and cauliflower, which aren't bad for you, but depending on the individual and how much they eat and how they're prepared, they can cause uh, bloating and gas and they can impair iodine absorption into the thyroid. So I talk about those things and at least initially, uh, I, I kind of put my diet through a, a, a filter, a digestion filter, so that people can then add things over time and see how they respond. Because a lot of times I'm trying to resolve IBS or IBD or GERD, you know, gastric reflux, uh, right out of the gate. And I have to fix those problems at the get-go. I can't do it later. And it's another reason why I emphasize sleep so much, because all of this conversation that we've just been having is for naught if you're only getting four or five hours of sleep. It's just a complete waste of time to be overly focused on your diet. If you're not even sleeping, it won't fix the problem. So uh, that summarizes how, how I, uh, I navigate this. I've said there's many paths to the same destination, and, and I have a specific path, a very specific list of foods that I recommend that they eat and don't eat and the reasons why. Um, but that's just to kind of get me from uh, point zero down the pathways and see how people respond, and then I can make adjustments ongoing depending on, on their results. Well, I think it's fantastic because with a lot of people, when they hop onto uh, you know a new plan with a coach or they try a, you know a new diet out, what what you've kind of said there is it, it's so true. You know, they hop onto these diets, they completely disregard certain. It's sometimes even certain ma entire macronutrient groups, you know, not even talking about micronutrients. Yep. Um, so there are huge deficiencies that are created. And during those deficiencies, obviously, the body responds in very, very specific ways. So the fact that, that you're slowly introducing things over time is such an interesting dynamic from a nutrition standpoint, because... Again, it's this whole thing where you're going, okay, these are all of the possible things that are going to happen on the spectrum, and we're going to slowly progress through and find out which stop you need to get off at, and that is going to be what is optimal for your body. And the fact that you can have something that's so general, that's so specific, again, I think is a very, very interesting concept. Yeah. Now, you mentioned also that in terms of things people should watch out for in terms of hunger and uh, energy for, a, say, if a woman that's dieting or a man that's dieting has some of the same problems. Uh, I said not to cut out dairy, not to cut out wheat. I keep fruit in the diet. I think it's hugely important for energy. I think it increases the um, your body temperature, it's been shown. Uh, it helps in the liver of T4 to T3, which is your inactive to active uh, uh, thyroid, which is about 80% of that conversion happens in the liver. So I've just found that a small amount of periodically energy. Uh, I look at satiety when I look at dieters because of the hunger issue. There's a satiety index that shows when you consume potatoes, you tend to stay fuller longer. When you consume oranges, you tend to stay fuller longer. So I use all of these strategies when I'm dieting. potato, the orange, uh, more sleep, all of those things help with satiety. And I already mentioned sodium and potassium because that 
helps mitigate cravings. So all of those things help with hunger. Sodium also helps with energy. People who tend not to salt their food end up getting tired. This is one of the biggest problems with keto. And I have keto clients, I have vegan clients. Uh, I have a whole chapter in the book that addresses the things that you need to do to mitigate any of the downsides to those, those problems. With the vegans, I've got to worry about hydrochloric acid for digestion. I've got to worry about uh, blending proteins to, and maximizing you know, the, the amount of amino acids you're going to absorb and getting, you know, um, and with keto people, I worry about uh, sodium loss. And that's what generally causes that keto flu or that tired feeling because you lose your glycogen. And glycogen is three parts water. Uh, or for every part glycogen, you got three parts water. And so you're initially the first five to seven pounds you lose is just water. Well, that water is seven sodium. And so now you, you've got some salt depletion. So now you're tired or you get up from a seated position and you get lightheaded. That's a sodium depletion. I have food uh, and I have everybody salt their food regardless and uh, take sodium before and after training. It really helps with endurance and stamina and, you're a big fan and of recovery the from working salt out. So the nutrients uh, and stuff as well. We're not just talking about standard table salt here, are we? Again, you're trying to just, where you can optimize, you're trying to. So is that the salt you'd opt for? It depends. Uh, there's no need to demonize table salt. There could be a benefit. When people started going to pink salts and to sea salts, they stopped getting adequate iodine. And iodine is very important. Of course, try iodothyronin. Iodine is part of thyroid. It's what helps your thyroid function. And it's also great for your immune system, and, and it's also part of the process for developing hydrochloric acid in the body. So iodine so I'll have a specific iodine source and want to use a pink salt. They just Pink salt's fine, or Himalayan, or sea salt, uh, or um, uh, you know whatever salt you choose. But understand it's not a good iodine source. And if you're taking in a ton of broccoli, uh, which blocks, impedes iodine absorption, you need to get adequate iodine. I recommend cranberry juice here in the States. It's a little easier to come by, a little more affordable. I've seen in places like Australia and Europe, it's a little more expensive and harder to get. Um, in which case, you can go to a sea kelp uh, and use that. And I'm not talking about more than, say, 300 or 600 micrograms a day, maybe a milligram at most. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not recommending ODing on iodine, but particularly for people who exercise. If you're sweating, if you're a soccer player, if you go do um, an aerobics class, or if you like to spin class and sweat, you're sweating out iodine. And that's going to have an impact on your skin, hair, and nails, and your metabolism, your basal metabolic rate. It also has a huge impact on blood pressure for men and women. Women in particular uh, has an impact on cholesterol. And so it uh, has an impact on uh, insulin sensitivity, your HA1C. So iodine is really, really fundamentally important. And if, it isn't, if you don't have a, a specific source in your diet, you should consider getting one and look at all of those potential symptoms, cold feet, um, you know, just generally being cold. And, of course, you know, we talked about all those other symptoms I just mentioned. So, but interesting uh, that all that's... of those things also are the kind of like scary, demonized kind of biomarkers for uh, kind of middle-aged men and women kind of as they're getting older. Every single list that you just, that you named there are all biomarkers that seem to be affected by the same thing. And I do fear that the industry has, well, not necessarily the industry, but the media has demonized soul to push people away from that. And it's a case of that we're probably finding now that 
if we just had more people that were consuming it, we wouldn't be having all of these people that are having to be put onto these insulin-based medications or these thyroid-based medications. And we would actually, by you know, buying this tiny pot of, uh, of iodized salt, we're saving ourselves hundreds of pounds in the future from having to go to the doctors or having to get medication that something so simple in your diet can fix. Yeah, there's so many other hormones that are affected by thyroid function and thyroid functions hugely affected by body weight, sleep and iodine intake and exercise. So these are lifestyle things. People come to me with these deficiencies and I don't recommend that they run and get you know, medicine for that. I, I look at the underlying causes and see if we can't fix those problems just by improving uh, their sleep and their body composition and getting adequate uh, iodine in their diet. And once they do, then they might be able to normalize. Uh, what we find as you age, people tend to sleep less, generally because they have uh, decreased growth hormone production, which uh, you know dramatically affects sleep. Um, they tend uh, their thyroid function tends to slow, and also their hydrochloric acid, their digestive enzymes, uh, their stomach acid tends to decrease. And that can make a huge difference in terms of the digestibility and absorbability of the nutrients. You know, you're not just what you eat, you're what you digest and absorb. And if you can't, uh, you know, properly break down those proteins into acids and you're not in your magnesium and your iron and your calcium because you have low stomach acid, then that's going to precipitate a whole uh, bunch of these problems that we're talking about. And then you're uh, deficiency. So. It's all tied together. I, I can't just say it's a, a diet fix. Uh, it all has to be done. That's why it's I'm a holistic I'm, approach. Uh, I'm so militant when I, I when I work. With it. It, it it really is. It really is. And that's I think that's why you probably have so that's I think the bulk you're, you're, of... you're so you're so militant in everything that you've done over the years that that militant nature carrying across into this program because you are a perfectionist and you need to make sure that everything is exactly as you want it, you've gone through and made it as clean and as accessible and as comprehensive as possible. So I think it's good because it's had a positive carryover into your final product, right? Yeah, and you know, people are busy and I understand that, that when I talk about this program, they're like, oh, I don't have time for all of that. I've actually made it so you get a bigger return on your investment, that you can do less and get greater benefit if you just do the things that have a bigger impact. Uh, this idea that, that you have to do, you know, extraordinary amount of cardio or uh, that you have a ton of supplements or something like that, or, or even do, you know, a lot of training is, uh, it's not required. If you can take care of the fundamentals for yourself, uh, and I put a whole uh, chapter in there on sleep to talk about good sleep hygiene and ways you could optimize it. I put a whole bunch of information in there on how to uh, time management skills, uh, just things like a 10-minute walk is much easier to comply with than going to the gym and doing a 40-minute cardio session at the end of the day. And I talk about all the research as to why it's even better to do three 10-minute walks as opposed to one 30-minute session at the end of the day. You can do them anywhere anywhere. If it's wintertime, you can get a little recumbent bike and put it in your living room or your garage. Uh, dramatically helps with blood sugars, helps with digestion. So it, it's, it's not just, uh, you know, what you do, but how you do it, when you do it, and what uh, effects that it has on your body. 
that it's it's important because nobody's going to sustainably uh, do 40 minutes of cardio on a treadmill at the gym for any extended period of time consistently. They've got jobs, they've got kids, their schedules change. It's just not going to happen. I think that that's in terms of compliance, that's a really poor thing to prescribe to people because they're just going to give up when they can't comply with that. Yeah, it's that whole thing of you're trying to make the goal as big as possible for the client to score in. And the the more you make adherence the, the central focus, the greater general success you're going to have, aren't you? You're going to get a bigger return on your investment because you've actually invested in it because it's easy to do. It's not that whole thing of, oh my God, I'm actually going to have to wake up 45 minutes earlier than I would do usually to go to the gym, to go and do my half an hour of cardio, make sure I can then shower, change, and then get off to work. It's like, okay, well, then that's interrupting your sleep pattern. Maybe you're missing out on a cycle in your sleep, which is going to have a bigger, more profound effect on the effects that day than you doing that cardio. So again, it's that whole thing of, if you make it easy, chances are you're going to get greater success from it. A hundred percent. And I find that, you know, I travel all over the world. I've been in 10 countries and 40 states in the last 18 months. And I'm able to eat the meals that I prep for myself. I make a couple of hot thermal meals to travel with, meals with me and my checked luggage. Uh, if I'm gone for a week, then I'll just take a Coleman cooler full of frozen meals. And wherever I land, I've got a fridge and a microwave. I'm compliant and I travel all over the world. So if you're home, uh, even if you're a, a policeman or a fireman or a, a real estate agent or a busy mom with two or three kids, uh, packing a couple of thermos and, and having your, your meals available, that's the number one thing you can do to comply. And it saves you time and money. So it actually takes you less time. Uh, I never have to, to, to worry about what I'm going to eat and when I'm going to eat because I, I took it all with me. It's funny how, how much of like a win-win-win you really think when you really think about it, just how much of a win it is, like, it's that whole thing of, you know, you're not tempted because you have everything there, you don't feel like you need to deviate and go off into that shop and check out this menu and then get lured into having this slightly more calorific meal than you would have done before, rather than that, you just reach into your, you know, your rucksack, your meal prep bag, boom, you're there, you've stopped that whole instance from happening, you're on plan, you've checked off that thing mentally in your head as well, so you're reaffirming positive habits so it's it becomes easier and easier and easier and i think you'll probably agree with this as well is that the longer you're in that and the more you're 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 surrounded by that the more the other external uh temptations kind of drift away you're not as drawn to like oh man i could freaking kill for that donut right now or like i could just murder someone for a bucket of kfc because you're you're keeping the adherence, you're reaffirming these things every single day, and you're getting all those nutrients and things that you need, so you're not necessarily going to have these wild cravings that are going to drive you outside of what your meal plan should be. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about one uh, particular group of people who struggles with appetite and cravings, and that's people who have hyperinsulinemia. Now, if you've got high insulin, then you're going to you're, when you eat something, your insulin is going to drive your blood sugars down so low that you're going to get extraordinary hunger and cravings. I mean, to the, to the point where you can hardly even satiate yourself no matter how much you eat. I find that to be one of the big, biggest challenges with 
uh, people who, who can't overcome their cravings. The, the challenging part is if you go to a doctor and he, he does a blood test and he gives you your fasted glucose and your HA1C, they might be normal. And if he hasn't taken the extra step to look at your insulin, which I think is kind of a leading indicator, high triglycerides, the, the sugars are converted into triglycerides in the liver in, in excess. Um, so I would recommend getting an insulin, a fasted insulin test. That could tell you that you've got a challenge. Here's the thing. Insulin, I think the normal range is between 2 and 24 here in the U.S. If you're above 6, you're probably fighting with some of these insulin challenges. Being hungry is one thing. People can manage a little bit of hunger. Uh, but being hangry from a high in insulin and a low blood sugar, a hypoglycemic event, that's unmanageable. You, I don't care how much discipline you think you have. Uh, that's unmanageable. So that's one of the first issues that I try and address with people who are having trouble with chronic dieting or obesity is to find out if they have high insulin because that tells me, okay, we, we, we have to manage that. Here's the method that I use. One, I go low carb, almost immediately go low carb. I, I have them just eat kind of a carnivore diet, just steak and eggs, every meal, every day. That's it. That dramatically reduces their insulin right away. I have them do a 10-minute walk after each meal. That also helps to control their insulin. Here's another thing I do that uh, diabetics do. Diabetics carry around dextrose tablets so that if they have a hypoglycemic attack, they can pop a dextrose tablet, and that can help uh, quelch that attack so they don't end up having some sort of diabetic coma. Um, uh, and, and your blood sugars are, are getting driven down so low that you're having these voracious cravings for sugar, uh, you know, gallon of Kool-Aid or, you know, donuts and, until, you, until you're just stuffed. Um, you can carry around some Jolly Ranchers in your pocket. And the second you start to feel a little, little bit of that lightheadedness or a little bit of that uh, low blood sugar uh, symptoms coming on, start sucking on uh, your Jolly Ranchers. Uh, it could be one, could be two. It doesn't matter to me. It's so low in total calories that, and, it, and it really helps curb that, that craving that it can get you to your next meal. I also have them, uh, between meals, I'll have them uh, take in some Nun tablets, N-U-U-N. They're sodium bicarbonate, it's flavored, which is baking soda. Baking soda suppresses the stomach acid. The increased stomach acid is what leads to the signals that can cause a lot of the, the hunger cravings. And so I'm just trying to manage those hormonal signals in your body so that you're not hangry. Uh, when you're at a calorie deficit, you're going to be hungry some, sometimes. And, and that feeling can be managed if it's reasonable. So that's a method that I use. I go with a low-carb, carnivore, uh, steak and eggs, um, some Jolly Ranchers, uh, and I have them eat to satiety, at least initially. You can eat about as much top sirloin steak and scrambled eggs as you want and, and just eat to satiety. And, and you'll find that you'll want, you'll, you won't be as hungry. You'll, you'll start eating a little bit less. Uh, and you'll have fewer cravings, and you won't have those blood sugars. So that's a method that I use with people who have those those conditions. Okay, so I'm going to chuck this out here because I mean I know you could probably talk about this for the next 24 hours if I if I didn't stop you and you you were kind of let yeah. off. Um, <laughs> so let's get on to the topic of sleep because I know that you are sleep's number one fanboy. Um, you're, you're, you're strongly, strongly in that corner and for all of the right reasons. So how, 
you know, we, we, we talk about kind of exercise versus nutrition, the percentile of what is going to give you the greatest results. And obviously, you know, you've spoken there about how actually not even doing the cardio and, and that side of things, realistically, the majority of it is in nutrition. And I say it's around, you know, 70, 80 to 20, 30, something around there. Now we bring sleep into this. How much does sleep make that huge percentile shrink away in comparison? Well, I would say I would start with sleep. It's the first chapter in my book. It's the first thing I address with my clients, particularly those who, who might be inclined to have apnea. Uh, that can raise your systolic blood pressure by 20 points. Um, it causes uh, you to have a hard time recovering from workouts because you end up with low blood oxygen. Uh, sleep's huge. And for dieting people, uh, if they don't get adequate sleep, they end up losing more muscle than fat. The body becomes stingy with the fat. It holds on to it. And so that's critical. I, I mentioned that it suppresses uh, estrogen or, or suppresses um, thyroid function, also suppresses testosterone function, inadequate sleep. You also uh, increases ghrelin, the hormone that causes more hunger if you don't get adequate sleep. Fighting hormone. And then just being awake longer throughout the day gives you more opportunity to eat. So there's a whole host of things that are very important for sleep. The more you sleep, the more lean muscle mass you'll retain, the better your thyroid function and basal metabolic rate will be, the less hungry you'll be. Uh, all of those things are, are critical. The better your growth hormone will be, the better your testosterone will be. Uh, so sleep's huge. And, and unfortunately, with respect to sleep, the vast majority of, of sleep is really just a person discipline thing. It's, it's going to bed on time. Most people sit up too late and then, and then to, as a double whammy, they're usually sitting up either watching TV or looking at their phone. Show me that lovely blue and light. the blue light from your phone and your television, yeah, it's having an impact on your, your, um, your melatonin production. And so you're not able to, to get the right hormonal signals to, to, for yourself to get adequate sleep. It impacts your REM and stage four recuperative sleep. Um, that's another big thing about sleep is that your, your REM and stage four sleep, sleep happens in cycles, about 90 minute cycles. And the more of those cycles that you can get throughout the night, the longer the stage three and four REM and stage four restorative sleep are. So most people only sleep six hours, only getting about three cycles. When you get into the fourth cycle, your restorative sleep is much, much longer. That's when most of your, your body's repair is done. And uh, so it's really important that you get at least seven sleep. Uh, I include a lot of the sleep hygiene things in there, making sure you're in a dark room, a quiet room, a cool room, uh, those things. You just have to set the environment correctly. A huge piece is waking up in the morning at the same time every day and getting exposed to sunlight. And if you're in a, a region that doesn't have light in the morning, then you can get one of those 10,000 lux lights on Amazon for like, I don't know, 50 to $100 and eat your breakfast in front of it. It helps start your, your, your body's circadian. But when the night comes, your, your melatonin is released, the timing is such that, that you're, you're sleepy and you can get to sleep at night. So uh, keep the phone away. You might even put it in the bathroom or the other room. If you keep it in your nightstand next to you, the likelihood that you're going to read it longer or get up in the middle of the night and look at it or it's going to disturb you is pretty high and then there's a, a whole lot of folks that are concerned about the electromagnetic frequency that comes from the telephones just from your Wi-Fi and the like I don't know how huge that is but if we're going to control 
control variables. Let's control all variables. Get adequate vitamin D. I take vitamin D daily. Um, I prefer to get it from the sun if possible, but not everybody has that opportunity, but that's one of the supplements that I think is very beneficial. I take that with breakfast because some people respond poorly if they take it before bed, and it should be taken with food because it's a fat-soluble vitamin. And maybe some ZMA with dinner, the zinc-magnesium complex, particularly the magnesium. It's hard to get from diet. Uh, I don't recommend a lot of supplements. I recommend vitamin D because it's hard to get from diet. I recommend magnesium because it's hard to get from diet. Uh, those would be two supplements that I would take. I would not take sleep aids. I would not take melatonin. Uh, in most cases, it's not very beneficial unless you're traveling and it might uh, help a little bit with jet lag. Uh, I wouldn't take any of the ambience, alcohol, marijuana. Uh, all of those things impair REM and stage four restored sleep. So you might be able to get to bed, but you're going to wake up in the morning and you're going to be accumulating fatigue long term because you're not going to be getting the restorative sleep. So I, uh, I, I want to throw it out there. So let's say uh, someone can't get into that fourth stage of sleep. Okay, they can't make it into that restorative stage. Let's say that they're getting uh, six hours. Okay, so, you know, we're, we're kind of close, but we're not quite adequate. We're getting something, but we're not optimizing. What is the benefit of then introducing, like, a nap throughout the day? Is that going to kind of give you any benefit? Is it a pointless task trying to force yourself to get off to sleep? And if you do suggest doing that, is there certain time frames that you should stick to because of the certain REM cycles and stuff that we're going to be drifting in and out of? Naps are great. The nap should be brief and it should be earlier in the day, probably before one o'clock and less than 30 minutes. That way you don't start to go into REM sleep or sleep too late in the day, which will prevent you from getting to sleep at night. Having said that, I have a lot of firemen who come to me and they're four hours and then they get up and they go about their day. And then later in the evening, they try and get another two or three hours before they go to work. Splitting your sleep up, getting eight hours of sleep, but in two separate four hour intervals is not as effective because you don't get the uh, benefit of that stage three and four, the longer duration restorative sleeps. And so I always suggest that they come home at seven in the morning after their shift, this is night workers, that they try and set aside seven plus straight hours, which is going to require them to control their environment. The neighbor's going to be running the lawnmower, the sun's going to come up, you have to have blackout blinds, you have to have earmuffs. Um, you're going to have to manage that environment. I have some athletes like Lane Johnson has a separate room because he has a wife and kids. And during season, he, he really needs to focus on that sleep. And so uh, naps are great. Uh, be cautious not to try and string together multiple uh, sleep um, times during the day, thinking it's going to add up to seven hours. It doesn't work that way. So uh, you would keep it to one a day. Would you minimize it to less than kind of one a day throughout the week? Is, is it something that you feel you get more benefit from as a short-term aid rather than a long-term kind of uh, aid? Yeah. yeah, I would throw them in whenever you can. I think it's a short-term. I think if you could do them daily, great. If you're, if you're that lucky that you could get a 20-minute cat. Uh, today, now I would caution that if you use a CPAP, if you have sleep apnea, uh, you're going to want to use the CPAP while you nap. Otherwise, you're going to end up 
creating more problems than you solve. So, yeah, I think my uh, my workout crews my workout crews showing up here very shortly. I'm in my garage gym, as you can see. The quarantine uh, my, gym. I'm in my garage gym, you know, we're all shut down. All the gyms are closed, and uh, my workout crew is showing up. I think it's almost eleven o'clock here, so. I'd have to do a, a round two, a, a part two, to talk about the weight gain aspect of this thing. Yeah, well, we'll I hear my, my door knocking. Have you back on, man? So I'll, um, I'll, I'll let's let do you, that. I'll let you get off. That's absolutely fine. Thank you so much for doing this. Really, really appreciate it. And uh, we'll we'll connect at kind of a later date and kind of uh, push this push this out as a two part series. Yeah, let's promise our uh, let's promise our viewers that we're going to do a two part. We'll talk talk about how to how to gain mass and how to get strong and jacked okay sweet awesome man right have a have a fantastic workout and i'll catch up with you uh in a little bit all right brother thanks for having me man no worries take care man. thank have you a fantastic talk to you later day.